Hey, Bob Ninjas was uh, baptized this past Sunday. Uh, Bob's in this service. Where, would you raise your hand for me, Bob, so I can just, where are you at? Okay, lights. Where? Somebody see him? There you are, all the way in the back. All right, and so we want to show you uh, a brief video of that baptism. Let's show that now. Bob Menjes, because of your belief in Jesus Christ and your confession of faith in him, I baptize you in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit for the forgiveness of sin and the gift of the Holy Spirit. Okay, welcome to the family, Bob. Congratulations on that baptism. That was the first time we've used our portable baptistry back there. It works great. Filled it up in like 30 minutes. It's got a heater. It's a great alternative in inclement weather. If you don't want to battle the waves in the ocean, it, it works great. So that is available to us for sure. We appreciate those who came to the baptism. One of our elders, Randy, came. And the Richbergs, Eddie, one of our deacons, and their family, Chris. And Nancy Goyette was there. And PJ was there, a friend of Bob's. And also, Bob mentioned at, at that baptism that... Really, he had come and visited, and the reason he came back was not because of the music, Kent, not because of the sermon, Steve, but because Tom Guy, one of our members, had reached out to him, made his acquaintance, learned his name, showed some interest in him, started building a relationship. That's why he came back. And so all of us can take a lesson, a page from that. People are looking for relationships, and we can do that. We can connect with folks here in the church, and that's one of the reasons folks come back. They're looking for a friendly church as well as a true and a biblical church. So as we move now into the message, I want to say a couplet to you and see if you can complete the phrase, peanut butter and jelly. Okay, you did good. Let's try some more. Ham and, all right, I would have said ham and eggs, but there, I guess there's more than one right answer here. Bread and butter, coffee and Cream, cookies and macaroni and meat and all right, all of those had in common, they were foods. Let's try some names. Adam and Romeo and Tarzan and Monica and Chandler. You had to watch Friends for that, which I didn't, but how about Stevo and Devo? Come on, people, Stevo Devo. All right, I started with that because today I want to talk about prayer and, prayer and. Now, if you're new to us, we're in a sermon series on prayer. In the first message, we talked about why everybody needs to have a prayer life, 10 reasons why. And then in the last two messages, it's been more of a how-to. Here is how we pray, and especially focusing on what's called, called the Lord's Prayer. And today, sort of continues in that line. We're going to continue with the how to pray by looking at certain things we add to our prayer lives or a way of thinking about our prayer life that enhance them. And then last, uh, next Sunday rather, we'll, I'll talk a little bit about those unanswered prayers. But today it's prayer and, some things to add to our prayer. And there are three. Let's start with this one, prayer and fasting. Prayer and fasting. Matthew 6, 16, Jesus said, when you fast. Now, it's interesting that where this is positioned in the chapter, almost immediately following what we call the Lord's Prayer, that teaching that Jesus did there when he said, here is how you pray. And then he says, when you fast. So there's a sort of an assumption there that fasting will be taking place. But there are a few teachings of Jesus that are more alien to modern Christians than is fasting. 
We're not even sure that's something that's necessary anymore or something that we are supposed to do. But fasting was practiced by Jesus and his disciples. Of course, it had been practiced by the Jews for centuries. It was practiced in the early church. We know that Paul and Barnabas fasted in both the Catholic Church and Protestant denominations. Many first centuries, they would fast two times a week on Wednesday and on Friday. Fasting means to go without food. Now, there are other things that people sometimes associate with fasting. I'm going to fast from technology for a wink or something like that, which is fine, but that's more abstinence. Biblically, fasting is going without food. It is a way of asserting to ourselves that our flesh is not in control. Our spirit is control in concert with the Holy Spirit. John Mark Comer writes, whenever I'm sitting with a friend who is struggling with any kind of habitual sin, I recommend he take up fasting, especially if the sin is sexual in nature, not because fasting is a silver bullet. It's not. I'm aware that most addictions and most forms of self-destructive behavior that are impervious to our attempts to change are rooted in trauma. Wickedness is tied to woundedness, and we all need healing. But still, through fasting, perhaps more than any other practice, the power of the Holy Spirit to break the chains of sin is released into our bodies. So there's not a lot of how-to in the Bible on fasting because the Jews simply knew how to do it. But typically, it would be going without food from sunup to sundown, a one-day fast. I would tell you, for each one of these, I want an easy an easy way for somebody to ease into the practice, the way I do it, is to skip one meal a day. One could start off just skipping one meal a day. I do that. I like to systematize everything. So I don't start eating until noon. I go without breakfast. You say, well, Steve, that doesn't sound like very much. That's not all that hard to do. Well, you try it. I get pretty hard, uh, hungry rather, uh, leading up to lunchtime, and, and I use those hunger pains to focus on the Lord and spiritual things, and to pray. But that's just a way to start out. What is the connection between fasting and prayer? I mean, eight times in the Bible, explicitly, fasting and prayer are mentioned together. So you can have prayer without fasting, but you almost never have fasting without prayer. Okay, fasting without prayer is just a diet. Now, there, there are some health benefits, they say, to fasting or like what I do, a partial fast, but I, I don't need a diet. I'm not interested in the health benefits. I'm interested in the spiritual benefits. And the Bible says that fasting is specifically tied to humility, to humility. And God hears the prayers of the humble, but not the prayers of the proud. Psalm 69:10, I humble myself by fasting. Psalm 10:17. Lord, you have heard the desire of the humble. You will strengthen their heart. You will make your ear attentive. God is listening to the humble. That's part of the connection there. Now, of course, before you ever try anything like this, consult a doctor. I don't want anyone dying next week because of this sermon. So make sure it's okay for you to do that health-wise. But if everybody came to church next Sunday hangry, I would know why and I would be happy. Prayer and fasting. Number two, prayer and journaling. Prayer and journaling. Psalm 102, 18. Let this be written for a future generation that a people not yet created may praise the Lord. What is journaling? 
journaling as I'm talking about it right now, is writing out our prayers, sitting down with a pen and a pad, or in my case, with a keyboard and a, a Word document, and writing out our prayers. And not just our prayers. I think it is especially effective and biblical to journal or to write out the prayers that we see in the Bible. Now, is there any biblical precedent to writing out one's prayers? Absolutely. It's called the book of Psalms. The book of Psalms written by David primarily, but also Moses and Asaph and the sons of Korah. These are primarily the, their prayers that they have written out. And we in turn can pray those prayers. We can journal those prayers. We can offer back to God His own words when we journal a psalm. Now, this is especially effective to pray God's words back to him. Years ago when our, our children were younger, maybe middle school age, we were driving one time and they're in Virginia and we were listening to music on the radio. And we were listening to my music, not their music. It's not the music they would have preferred to listen to. It's the music I preferred to listen to. Because my rule was, my car, my music, Right? When you have your car, you can listen to your music. So we were driving along, and we're, we're listening. It happened to be John Denver was singing Rocky Mountain High. Rocky Mountain High. I was enjoying John Denver, Rocky Mountain High. All of a sudden, my, my, son, my, my son pipes up. He says, Dad, what is that song about? I said, well, son, that song is about John Denver. He's up there in the Rocky Mountains, and he's just enjoying those. It's kind of a natural high for him. So there was a pause, and then Stephen said, Dad, I, I think that's a song about drugs. He's, he's talking about getting high. I said, no, no, no. He's using that term euphemistically. Euphemistically, he's just high on nature, like I said. There's a pause, and, and there was some more singing, and, he's, and he's, he quoted these lyrics. Friends around the campfire, and everybody's high. He said, Dad, they're sitting around the campfire smoking dope. They're getting high, Dad. You're making us listen to a druggy song. He said, he said what, what do you always say, Dad, about drugs? Just say no to drugs. Don't you say that? I said, yeah, just say no to drugs. He said, Dad, you always say just say no to drugs, and you're making us listen to a druggy song. What's Mom, what's mom going to say? So I switched the radio station. A little Pharisee. I switched over, I think, to a Beatles song, a little help for my friends. There's no drug references there at all. We get by with that help from our friends. Well, what was he doing? He was using my own words against me. And it's pretty effective. And when we pray the songs, we're taking the words inspired by the Holy Spirit. We're not using them against God, but we're offering them up to God. It's like they are pre-approved prayers. When we pray the Psalms, and I'm talking right now about journaling the Psalms, right? Then we're following the example of Jesus who also prayed the Psalms. And this is a pre-approved way to pray. Praying the Psalms, journaling the Psalms has taught me, among other things, you as well, I'm sure, to cultivate a desire for God, Psalm 84, 2. My soul yearns, even faints, for the courts of the Lord. My heart and flesh cry out for the living God. Who talks like that today? You see how praying or journaling a psalm can deepen and widen 
our expression in prayer. The Psalms have taught me to ask God for repentance. Turn us again to yourself, O God, and make your face shine down upon us. Praying and journaling the Psalms has taught me to praise God for his past miracles. I remember your wonderful deeds of long ago. You are the great God of great wonders. When the Red Sea saw you, O God, its waters looked and trembled. Journaling the Psalms has taught me to call on God for protection from spiritual enemies. Psalm 71, O Lord, I have come to you for protection. Don't let me be disgraced. Rescue me from the power of the wicked. Journaling the Psalms reminds me of my primary relationship. Psalm 73, whom have I in heaven but you? I desire you more than anything on earth. My health may fail and my spirit may grow weak, but God remains the strength of my heart. He is mine forever. You know, the one-year Bible is a great tool. I believe every Christian should have it as a goal, a discipline, and a practice to read through the entire Bible on a regular basis over and over and over again. One of the greatest tools to accomplish that is the one-year Bible, a Bible written in 365 divisions. You read one portion each day. You read through the entire Bible in a year. In every single one of those daily portions of Scripture, there is a psalm. That's the psalm that I journal that day's psalm. Make it a discipline and pray it to God. David says in 2 Samuel 23, 2, the Spirit of the Lord spoke through me. His word was on my tongue. We're not inspired like an apostle or like David, but we can put God's words on our tongue, the psalms, and pray them to the Lord. Jeremiah 19, Jeremiah says, the Lord said, look, I have put my words in your mouth. We can put God's words in our mouth and pray them back to God. Journal the Psalms. Prayer and fasting, prayer and journaling. And thirdly, finally, prayer and worship. Prayer and worship. Jesus said, our Father in heaven. Technically, Jesus did not say, my Father in heaven. He said, our Father in heaven. Referring to corporate prayer. And by corporate, we mean that's group prayer. Of course, we should pray as individuals, but we also pray as a group, as a church, corporately. When we get together in our life groups, we pray together. When we get together here in church, we pray together corporately. There, 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 there's a pattern for this in the New Testament. Acts chapter 2, verse 42 says of the early church, all the believers devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, sharing in meals, including the Lord's Supper, and to prayer. A lot of commentators believe that's kind of the fourfold process what was happening in a worship service. The apostles' doctrine, that's the teaching from the Bible. The fellowship means sharing together, breaking of bread, the Lord's Supper, and prayer. That's what's supposed to happen in church. We pray together. Early on in Acts chapter 4, we read, Luke records how the apostles were persecuted. When they came out from that persecution, they gathered the congregation together. Acts 4, 24, all the believers lifted their voices together in prayer to God. They prayed together. You know what they prayed? They prayed a psalm. They prayed a psalm, Psalm 2, verses 1 and 2. I recently read a book called The Patient Ferment of the Early Church by author and historian Alan Kreider. He says, in part, by the middle of the third century, many churches saw it necessary to be organized and efficient in excluding outsiders from the assembly. The deacons were bouncers at the door. 
In other words, because of the persecution that the church was undergoing, if you were a guest, like you were, we, we say, welcome guests, come on in guests. We always are, have in mind the guests. All right, we're glad you're here. But then they'd have deacons at the door. You're not a member, you can't come in. The guests were excluded. Only the Christians came in. And in order to become a part of a church, you had to go undergo a process called catechesis, which was instruction. You would have a sponsor from a Christian sponsor in the church if you wanted in, and you go through this process of catechesis, instruction, and they're watching for the fruit of repentance in your life before they will baptize you. That process could last three years. Now, why would someone submit themselves to that, subject themselves to that? Why go through this long three-year process before you can even be baptized and start attending the worship of the church? It was a persecuted church. There was no advantage to being in that congregation. Part of the answer to that question, why would somebody even want to do that, was prayer. Alan Kreider continues writing, Christians, in a manner unparalleled among the pagans, prayed together. Their place of worship was a place of corporate prayer, with many people praying, standing near each other, before the face of God. Rarely were the corporate prayers of the Christians of the first three centuries characterized by silent listening. Instead, the Christians often offered spoken prayers of thankfulness. Prayer was at the heart of Christian worship because it gave power to powerless people. Why did people come to worship services week after week? Many came because they couldn't live, couldn't survive without prayer. The more prosperous faced discrimination. The poor, illiterate, and non-elite faced powerful social stressors. Tertullian, born in AD 160, described these praying Christians as follows, quote, people who are dying, weak people, ill people, People possessed by demons, prisoners, and those in bonds. People threatened by robbers. Poor people who need support and the persecuted, end quote. Kreider continues, the early Christians' practice of prayer empowered them and gave them buoyancy. And the rumors got out. Christian worship was a place of empowerment. There was power here, and outsiders got a whiff of it and wanted in. The outsiders wanted access to the power center of prayer. Now, you may be thinking, well, okay. But you know, we don't devote a whole lot of time to prayer in our service. We have an opening prayer. We have a closing prayer as far as corporate prayer is concerned. Well, I, I understand that, but I beg to differ. I think we actually devote quite a lot of time in our service to corporate prayer. It's called the song service. The song service. Maybe we should think about the song service a little bit differently than we do. So many of the songs that we sing are prayers. They are corporate prayers that we are saying together in unison. The music helps us to stay synced up but they are prayers, especially the contemporary songs that we sing like we just sang and are about to sing are written as prayers to God. That's biblical. 
Psalm 45, for the director of music, to the tune of lilies of the sons of Korah. Psalm 56, for the director of music, to the tune of a dove on distant oak. Psalm 57, for the director of music, to the tune of do not destroy. Psalm 22, for the director of music, to the tune of the doe in the morning, a psalm of David. Nine times we have this appellation to the psalms that for the director of music. The psalms are the prayer book and the song book of the Old Testament. And it was used in the New Testament worship as well. And those descriptions that I just read, those appellations were not added by the interpreters. Those were put in by the Holy Spirit. They're a part of the original psalm itself. And by the way, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty much done here, but let me add this parenthetically. When we think of the posture of prayer. There are different postures for prayer that are mentioned in the Bible. Kneeling, praying prostate, which is laying face down flat on the ground, and praying with one's hands lifted. That is mentioned over and over and over. Paul wrote to Timothy in 1 Timothy 2.8, in every place of worship I want men to pray with holy hands lifted up to God, free from anger and from controversy. Now, I'm just going to say, I don't believe in manipulating the congregation. Whether you lift your hands when we sing songs or pray or not, I don't care. (laughs) If you lift your hands, praise God, we can be friends. If you don't lift your hands, we can be friends. You know, I was raised, like a lot of us were, in kind of a conservative Christian church where we didn't raise hands. Raising hands was drawing too much attention to yourself, or it was associated with the charismatic movement. So we just didn't do that. You know, but when, when Scott's grandkids ran up to him this morning as we were singing and they lifted their hands up, he didn't say, put your hands down, you little charismatics. They just wanted Scott to lift them up. And maybe sometimes when we see somebody's lifting their hands up, they're not trying to draw attention to themselves. They just want God to lift them up. It certainly is a biblical posture of prayer. So feel free if you feel led to do that. Now again, a lot of us, a lot of you are like me. We don't know how to do that. We're not real comfortable with that. And so I provide to you today a little instruction video from Tim Hawkins on how to raise your hands should you choose to do so. Let's roll that. And I know that each church has its own worship style, you know, which is cool. Some people are more expressive in worship, some people more subtle, and it's all good. Um, I go to a church that's pretty expressive in worship. It's, um, it's a hand-raising church. That's what it is, right? That's what, you know. Anybody here go to a hand-raising church? Anybody here? Sweet. Who here does not go to a hand-raising church? <laughs> some of you are trying. You're like, I can't. I want to, Tim. I need to get some momentum. <laughs> totally cool. But hey, if you're not used to going to a hand-raising church, you want to go and join us, feel free to join us, but don't feel like you've got to join right in, okay? Start slow. we got a lot of different hand-raises that we use. We actually have names for our hand-raises. So I'm going to walk you through real quick, okay, what they are, just to let you know. Say you're at my church, music is rocking, start slow, hands in the pockets, little elbow flap, you're fine. Very subtle. Get warmed up. Get your heart rate up. When you're warmed up, start with the first one. Ready? Carry the TV. Carry the TV. That's our first one. Very subtle. 
Go to big screen. Big screen, a little wider. Next one's my fish was this big. My fish was this big. If you're a liar, you can go out there. That's fine. Don't worry about it. Jesus loves you. Grace. Next one's hold my baby. Hold my baby. Got dueling light bulbs. That's our next one, dueling light bulbs. Got goalpost. Everybody knows goalpost. Throwing a heartburn. A lot of people like to do heartburn. Double heartburn, right back to goalpost. What's my favorite? Mufasa. Mufasa, that's my favorite. The circle of life. Tim, can you go higher? Yes, you can. You can take one hand, go a bunch of different stuff. Pointer, hatchet, schoolroom. Release the doves, give the Lord a high five. Press it out. A lot of women like to wash the window. Wash the window. And when you're comfortable there, go for the big three. Village people, Rocky, touchdown. There you go. There's your big three. All right. We may never think of hand raising again in the same way. By the way, we have a prayer group that meets here. Treasures in Heaven is a group praying for the salvation of prodigals and others caught up in sinful practices of unbelief. They meet at 930 every Sunday right over here in the office complex. Would you say together with me today as we close the Lord's Prayer? Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen.